Welcome to the Sensibly Speaking Podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and with video here on YouTube. Uh, this week, it is another episode of The Three Apostates. I welcome back Lloyd Evans and Jonathan Streeter. Hi, guys. Hello. Hey, it's great to be here. Awesome. For the record, for the record I am now known as the Lloyd Evans at large. So, just, <laughs> Okay, good. Yeah, just clearing that up. Uh, okay, good. I'll address the titling accordingly. <laughs> um, okay, so this week, we're, we're going get, to get right into this. I've been looking forward to this. It's always a little bit of an adventure getting us uh, synced up logistically to do these. Um, but Lloyd Evans recently did a video on his channel about the afterlife. Uh, I think he called it the problem with, problem with the afterlife, yeah? The trouble with the afterlife. Trouble. Yeah, and, and he did a really nice job of breaking down the view of, uh, of the Jehovah's Witnesses in terms of what the afterlife and what they can come to expect. And it got me thinking that I have talked about this, of course, on my channel as well. I did a whole video about Scientology and death. Um, but we have not compared and contrasted. And I thought that the thing about the Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Scientology, is they are not vague or general about what happens in the afterlife. It's not a sort of you die and go to heaven and what's going to happen to you is sort of open to whatever your interpretation of that is. There are very detailed ideas about what goes on in the afterlife uh, in all of our former groups that we were involved in. And so I thought it might be interesting to sort of talk about that a bit and see uh, where they compare, like I said, and where they contrast. So I'd like to start um, hey, Chris, yes. before, you, before we get into the details, I think it's worth kind of reviewing the power of certainty over the afterlife and how it attracts people. Like, like one of the reasons that people stay in these groups is because there's, you know, the, the fear of the unknown that is involved with not knowing what happens after this life is kind of one of the mortal fears that goes all the way back to the beginning of humanity. And so when somebody comes along and they have this answer, and it's a glorious answer, and it is is the most beautiful eternal existence that you could imagine, then that is a magnet for people who want that, and then that becomes held out as a carrot, and suddenly these hoops show up that you have to jump through in order to get to that carrot. And it's it's part of the power that you know each of our groups have over the minds of the members is is you know holding on to that dream, that vision of eternity. That's a that's an excellent point. Um, I the the I, in fact the certainty I I think I called it the certainty trap in Scientology mm -hmm. because it is because Hubbard actually positioned Scientology as the science of certainty. That was the first thing he said about it back in 1953, and um and it and it is a trap because it it gives you this idea that all the questions are answered, all the problems are solved. All you have to do is toe the line and your place in the afterlife as described by the, you know, the founders uh, is, is a certainty. It's absolutely like, there's no question about it. This is where you're going. Yeah. And, um, and yeah, people will go through some of the craziest hoop jumping. Right. <laughs> and at, the, at the end of this conversation, you're going to see that Mormon heaven is the best. So I just want to lay that out there. Oh, 
Okay. <laughs> well, it depends which planet you, you get awarded, doesn't it? I suppose. Oh, so many misunderstandings. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And well, of course, and I would say Scientology has the best because with Scientology, you have the power and ability to go make your own planet. Uh, or your own universe. As this is actually the, the terms Hubbard uh, would use to describe it as you, you, would, you would rehabilitate your own universe and uh, the power of creation over it. So, <laughs> All right, so how do you want to start? Do you want, uh, do you want the lay down on the, on the Mormon afterlife? Yep. Yeah, okay. let's break it down. What, what's the deal? Okay, so um, this, so you have to put yourself back in the mindset of, you know, 19th century Protestant Christian American. And, um, you know, the ideas at that time were influenced by Calvinism, where you have kind of a very strict, rigid view of the afterlife and the things that you have to do for that, as well as other ideas that are flourishing as some of these new religions are coming about. And when you look in the life of Joseph Smith, one of the kind of the seminal events was that he had a brother that had died. Um, and a minister came and said, well, since he didn't get baptized, he's going to hell. And that really influenced him. And, and on top of that, he had family members that took more of a universalist perspective, which is that, you know, after people die, you know, we're really all going to get to live with God in heaven. Um, and, you know, it, it's a universalist perspective. And so as Joseph Smith constructed his theology, as he brought things together, he drew upon a lot of these different ideas and created a system that was very appealing to people at the time. And, and what it is, is that you die, and then there's kind of a, there's a probationary state that happens between when people die now and when Christ returns and the final judgment happens. And so there's kind of a pre-judgment where you have paradise and spirit prison. And so the people that were generally good, that were Mormons, that had done all the Mormony things, will go to paradise, and everybody else will go to spirit prison in this intermediate time frame. And is this, that, it, it, they actually call it spirit prison? Yes, spirit prison. Oh, and, it's not really an imaginative title, is it, really? It's, well, no, it's pretty, pretty like, hard. Very descriptive, yeah. You're going but, to so, spirit prison. But, so, Lloyd and Chris, when you die, you're going to go to spirit prison. But this is the beauty of it. The Mormons who are in spirit paradise, who are in paradise in this time window, are going to go and be missionaries to you in spirit prison. And you'll have so an opportunity. The life is being pulled on by Mormon missionaries. Pretty okay. much. <laughs> oh, oh like hell. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, you'll have the opportunity to accept the truth of Mormonism at that time. Really? Yes. And now that is a now that is very interesting to me because that opens the door to the idea that I can be a complete asshat my entire life. And just that would be you know, impossible, Chris. That would be well, impossible. Well, the fact that you said could be, maybe. Yeah, I mean, maybe I could. You're already there. Anyway, but the, no, what they'll tell you because people have raised that objection. Well, I could just, I could be Hitler, and then you know, I could, you know, repent and be saved. And the, yeah, the doctrinal solution to that is no, 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 no. You are going to wake up in spirit prison with the same attitudes, the same mentality that you have here on Earth. Okay. And the thing that that denies is the fact that, you know, there's going to be some new information presented to you I, if you're like, I died and here I, I am here at prison. Yeah. So like that South Park episode where they're like, well, who was right? And they're like, mm, the Mormons. Yep, that's you know? right. And when Satan is standing there with the pit of, you know, eternal damnation, 
I, I think uh, I oh, might. Okay, you know. well, no, no, let's let's talk about eternal damnation because this is where Joseph Smith is brilliant. So we have that, okay, and and that ends up, you know, the spirit prison thing ends up kind of fueling what eventually turns into this concept of baptism for the dead, and we'll talk about that later. But um, what happens after that, after the final judgment, um, Joseph Smith had a revelation that said it's not just heaven and hell. What you have are three degrees of glory, all of which fall under the title of kingdoms of heaven. And the highest degree of glory is the celestial kingdom. And then under that, you have the terrestrial and he made up this word, telestial kingdom, each represented symbolically by the sun and the earth and stars in descending degrees of glory. And in the celestial kingdom, People that are Mormon in this life are faithful to the end, that do all of the, jump through all of the hoops in Mormonism, get to be in the celestial kingdom. And in the celestial kingdom itself, there's also different degrees of glory. So if you were just baptized into the Mormon church and, and you did everything that was good in the Mormon church, but you didn't get married in the temple and receive the temple endowments and do the temple stuff, you can still be in the celestial kingdom. You just won't be at the highest level in the celestial kingdom. And there are statements by prophets that mean that say that, well, basically that means the people will serve the higher people. If you're in the celestial kingdom, you'll be kind of a servant to the highest people. And um, then on top of that, uh, so, okay, so that's that category of people. And there's a lot more to be said about that. But then below that you have, um, the, the lesser kingdom, which I believe is the, the terrestrial kingdom. And that is going to be all the good people. They were good people, decent people. They just never joined the church or they never had the church presented to them for them to join it, but they probably would have joined it. And, um, and there are even a few church leaders who have said it might be possible to move from one kingdom to the other in the afterlife. Maybe get but, an upgrade. Yeah, you know, yeah. So, and the way it goes is that in the highest kingdom, you can be in the presence of God, the Father, and Christ, and they're separate people in Mormonism. Um, oh, okay. When you go down to the terrestrial kingdom, then you, you won't get God, the Father, but Christ will come and visit, and so you'll have access to that. And then we go down to the telestial kingdom, and in that kingdom, that's where all the murderers, the rapists, the really bad people that normal Christian mentality says those are the people that should go to hell. No, these are people who are in... The, lo the lowest kingdom of heaven. So if you, you know, were kind of a, a crummy guy, maybe you were hard on times, you did drugs, you maybe stole something, you might find yourself in the Tlisteville kingdom with Hitler and Genghis Khan and all these other people. Um, but, but maybe not because I didn't tell you that in spirit prison, Hitler has the chance to redeem himself. And we have done the baptismal work for Hitler. So as long as Hitler said, okay, I'm sorry, uh, Hitler's good. He's going to be up in the higher heaven. And um, Wow. <laughs> okay, and then that yeah, leaves... Done the work that, for him. Have you filled in the papers? I, I don't understand. Yeah, so the papers have been done. done. Done the admin for yes. Adolf Hitler. Okay. Yeah. For wow. Adolf Hitler. So he's actually got a pass. He's Mormon. Wow. 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 Okay. Well, Okay. But, something but, every day. I've never knew I, it. I had be, no idea. Yeah. There's going to be a reckoning because not only did we baptize Hitler, but we also baptized a whole heck of a lot of Jewish people who died in the Holocaust. That's going to be awkward. And, and there's going to be some awkwardness there. But yeah. 
one of the Christian principles is forgiveness. And so that will be their test. Now, the, the final thing that I need to talk about in terms of this whole plan is what's called the, the outer darkness or the sons of perdition. Now, this is what most Christian would, would say is supposed to be what hell is. This is a place where you have no access to any godliness at all meaning that you're not going to be receiving visits by God the Father, God the Son, or the Holy Ghost. You are in outer darkness. And um, so the people that are there are going to be Satan or Lucifer, who, remember, is one of God's children in Mormonism. Uh, and he led, before we even got to this earth, he led a third of God's children away from God. They're going to be there with him. And then anyone who, in this life, received a full awareness of the glory of God and rejected it. We, we call that an un unpardonable sin, is denying God and denying the Holy Ghost. Um, various leaders have expressed it in different ways. Very early on, you'll say, this is anyone who was in the church and rejected it and left. So anyone who's apostate would fall into this category. So I would be in outer darkness while Hitler is yucking it up with everyone. I'm in outer darkness. You're worse um, than Hitler. Essentially. I mean, you know, you are too. So, um, well, obviously, that, no, yeah, that's so, a given. I'm just saying it's a bit of a shock to hear, hear that about you. The, the threat of that outer darkness was used kind of as a bludgeon to keep people in the church early on. Um, and they've softened it since then. So now they've said, well, the only way you could really reject God is if you were completely and fully exposed to his glory. And nobody has really ever been fully exposed to his glory since, you know, the, that happened very, very rarely. Do they phrase it in quite that way? That sounds... No, no, they don't say exposed to his glory, but, you know, you, you have to have a full... Full and and you cannot. Boy, you are a bad, bad man. You are such a bad person right now. Just... Okay, so the final thing I want to leave you with is something that's become... you're going to hell just for that. <laughs> something called a TK smoothie um, in Mormonism, which you'll hear joked about, and that is because some people posed to one of our prophets the question of, okay, okay, if you're in the celestial kingdom then you are going to become a God just as God is God. And what that means is that you'll have your own universe of countless planets. You'll have countless progeny that you will act as God just as we revere God today. You will be their God. Uh -huh. And so that is one thing. But in those lesser kingdoms, you don't have that. And so some people said, well, what about having children? Do you, are we going to still have spirit children like the other God? And what the leader said is, no, you won't have the physical capacity to have children. Your body will actually change. And what that means is that basically the genitalia of your physical body will be removed. And so we call it a TK smoothie because much like the Ken doll, you won't even miss having kids or anything involved in having kids while the people in the celestial kingdom are having eternal sex and the progeny that happens with that. And they'll say, well, we don't know how that's going to happen, but um, that, you know, that, that Mormonism is very rooted in material reality in that God has a physical body and we each can look to have a perfected physical body just like God does. And it's tied in with progeny with sexuality frankly and so that's that's kind of the the, the overview there's a lot more to go into but uh, i want to hear about you guys well okay so i want to ask a couple questions though because i've been I, i've had questions about some things and uh and i'm sure i'm gonna have questions for you too lloyd um is this collab thing real 
is this like a is this a place like what what is Colab? Okay, so Colab was the name of a, a, a star planet system that when Joseph Smith got some documents about, um, they, they were actually Egyptian funerary texts, and he used them, and he at the time said, I've, I've translated these Egyptians into a scripture, the Book of Abraham, because these papyri were actually written by Father Abraham. You look, you can see his signature. Now, and that was before Champollion and the cracking of the Rosetta Stone so that we can read hieroglyphics was widespread throughout the world. So nobody knew how to read hieroglyphics. No one could contradict Joseph Smith. Now, okay. years later, people started to be able to read hieroglyphics and they looked at the hieroglyphics and they said it, it doesn't have anything to do with Abraham. Not only that, but this is just a normal funerary text of the Egyptian pagan religion that you would find anywhere else. And so the church has changed its position. Are you telling us that Joseph Smith made something up? Uh, yes. I mean, that, that, but what? we can reframe it. We're going to reframe Wait, what? it. No what way. The, no. What the church says now is that translate just meant it inspired him to, to be, have it revealed to him. Uh, and so that was the, um, that was the thing. But, so, okay, as part of that, he came up with this system of astrology, and he even talked about how the keeping of time is different for God than for man. And part of that was that God's home planet was near a system called Kolob. And not only that, but our star, through some sort of quantum mechanical thing, received its light and energy from Kolob, from the system of Kolob, and, and so we are actually getting light from the home of God through our sun. And, and so that is where Kolob enters into it. And so when you, we actually have a hymn saying, if you could hide to Kolob, and it's really an aspirational sort of thing where people are wanting to have a connection to God because we've called that now the home of God. Now, the word Kolob is really weird, but if you go back to that era, Joseph Smith was coming up with a bunch of really funny sounding words that he said were the phonetic pronunciation of these Egyptian hieroglyphics. And there was some Hebrew mixed into it because he was actually, he had hired a Hebrew teacher to teach him some Hebrew. So you'll find some real things tied in with it. And he was always able to say that the reason that you have some Hebrew mixed in with this Egyptian is because the, the, the Israelites were with the Egyptians at some point. So it almost ties into the religious narrative of, you know, the Abrahamic covenant and, and people. So he's basically taking, if I'm understanding what you're saying, he's taking bits from here, bits from there, mm -hmm. putting it together, oh, yeah. feeding it to people who have no concept of what he's actually talking about and no scholarly or academic way of confirming any of the information, right. like reading. Yeah. Right. And so yeah. it gives it the air of authenticity. So people have actually gone back and they've looked, this whole concept of, of degrees of heaven was actually something originated by a gentleman by the name of Emanuel Swedenborg. And he has his own religious following. His texts were available to Joseph Smith. And you can see where he, Joseph Smith would have drawn upon those concepts to articulate his own thing. And since that was already a well-developed theological framework, then it made Joseph Smith seem to have this layers of complexity that gave authenticity to his story. This is exactly like Scientology. I knew we were going to find something like this. Just, you know, just you get this grifter type, right? Joseph Smith, L. Ron Hubbard, and they just, they just take stuff. They just take shit from other people, just left, right, and center. Oh, that sounds good. I'm going to incorporate that into here. And then they become 
And I don't know, John, you tell me what you think about this, but somebody recently said, uh, a high level former Scientologist said, uh, L. Ron Hubbard's genius was in marketing. He could, he could, he could, he was not a great thinker. He wasn't a very original thinker, but he could take all this stuff, put it all together, kind of create a semi-coherent whole and then say, and then sell it. And he was great at selling it to people. He's a really, he, I mean, yeah. he, he was a writer and the guy could write. So yeah. that's how he did it. And it sounds a lot like what Joseph Smith was doing with his dogma. Yeah. I think what we call Joseph Smith is similar to that. Instead of marketer, we just say he was a religious genius. He knew how to draw upon religiosity and, and use the levers of humility, piety, and just, you know, the general culture that has this um, mentality of wanting to appeal to God. And, and he would just pull on those heartstrings and know exactly how to give people what they were yearning for on a lot of uh, people that were unsatisfied with the Protestant Christian world of today. When you look at the Book of Mormon, the Book of Mormon itself answers with certainty a lot of those questions, things like infant baptism, like, you know, wh where you go after you die. And, and uh, I, the last thing, part of that is this dread over eternal damnation. You mentioned that before. And in one of the revelations Joseph Smith gave, he, with the voice of God, says, well, actually, when I say the word eternal damnation, it doesn't really mean that you're like in eternal hellfire forever. It just means that, you know, my name is eternal. And so any damnation that I give to people is eternal damnation, but I can stop it anytime I want. So you'll basically get tortured for a little bit and then it'll stop and then you can move on. And so eternal damnation just means the damnation of God which, or the hellfire of God, or however you put it, which will end when God wants it to and allow you to continue to progress. And so- well, just a little bit of torture sounds perfectly reasonable to me. Um, <laughs> right. It's the buffetings of Satan or the buffet of Satan. It's kind of how we talk about it. Oh my God. This is so interesting. I'm just fascinated by this. I get, I get why people get so fascinated by this stuff. It's just such an interesting layout. Um, Temple work is something we didn't really talk too much about. So temple work is tied intimately into the afterlife because when you go through the temple, you sit through a melodrama that talks about the creation of the earth. And this is where it ties the entire existence together because we talk about where we came from before the earth, the creation of the earth and while you're there. And it gives you a series of secret handshakes and keywords that when you die and you are on the cusp of heaven, if you know those handshakes and key words and you can perform them correctly, then you can be brought into the celestial kingdom, into the presence of God. And it's one of the things that um, is, is a gateway to heaven. And so since that is now requirement for you to get into heaven, when the church restricts or prohibits people from going into the temple, they're essentially acting as gatekeepers to heaven and it gives them a great deal of power over members. So going to the highest tier of heaven isn't just about being a good person. It's about having a good memory. Exactly. You know, muscle memory, good memory. Got to yeah, have that so muscle memory. <laughs> when, when it first came out, it was not only these handshakes, but there was also penalties where you would pantomime having your throat slit or having your heart ripped out or your guts open. It was all copied from the Freemasonry. Um, That's what I was going to bring yeah. up. It sounds exactly like it was taken right, right. out of Freemasonry. Right. And so that was a part of it. You had to swear to secrecy using those penalties. In 1990, those were removed as overt acts, but the hand, 
the hand signals that you have to make, they're called tokens that represent it, still include very specific positioning of the thumb, which represented the blade in those penalties. And they are still subtly and secretly encoded in the temple ceremony. And so the part of heaven that continues to have a pull on Mormons today is that they are told they need to constantly go back to the temple and perform those, those ordinances as proxy for people who died without having a chance to do it themselves in that spirit prison. And so Mormons spend hundreds, if not thousands or hundreds of thousands of hours every year in temples all around the world going through these ordinances for people who are dead. And it keeps them busy, it keeps them tied, it keeps them feeling like they are making a difference and saving the universe, saving the people in the universe. And that was what was so enlightening about watching Leo Romini's show where she talked about how um, Scientology gives these people the idea they're saving the universe because in Mormonism, when you're doing that temple work, you're acting as a savior for all of these other spirits. And, and that's very appealing to people too. Yes, it absolutely is. And again, ties in very closely with Scientology beliefs in a, in a, in a sort of way with the body thetans and, and mm -hmm. exercising them and, and freeing them. So, okay, um, fascinating, fascinating. Okay, the question I wanted, to, I was going to ask you, and I'll, and we'll, I know this could be a huge thing. I just want to kind of a yes or no. Sure. Do you think Joseph Smith, for based on everything you've studied and read and know about, actually believed this stuff? I I think he was a combination of what's called a pious fraud and a con man. I think he believed that the things that he were te was teaching would bring people closer to God in some sense. And he realized that his own genius in giving people what they wanted would also give him power and position and authority, and he thrived on that. And so he could justify what he did because he believed it was helping people become better and, and get closer to God. Um, I kind of think you have to kind of have a little bit of disbelief in the reality of God in heaven in order to manipulate people like that, but we'll never know because his journals are performance pieces that make him look like a very religious and pious person. But he outright said that you can look at my journals and it'll prove that I'm a good guy. So we all knew that he was using his journals as a performance piece. Got it. Okay. Okay, Lloyd, you're up. Let's begin. Let's begin. Well, yeah. I mean, you did a whole video on this, so we don't necessarily need to do a redo of that. But I. But what's the what's the basic layout? You die, and you know, what, what happens? So one thing I didn't mention in my video is that there are various uh, levels, not quite as many as Mormonism, but the, the, there are different options available to you um, if you die as a righteous person. One of those options is to be resurrected uh, into into a spirit life, and that's where the one hundred and forty four thousand teaching comes in that Jonathan alluded to. That's taken from a verse in Revelation that is interpreted literally. So, what's interesting is that Revelation is full of numbers, and different numbers signify different things. Um, and even Jehovah's Witnesses interpret many of the numbers symbolically. They take the 144,000 number and say, well, this is a literal number. This is literally the number of people who get to rule in heaven alongside Jesus. Okay. And this is the number of people that go all the way back to the time of Jesus. So everyone since Pentecost 33 CE, which is when the first kind of 
disciples were anointed with Holy Spirit. Everyone from that point onward um, who is a faithful Christian gets included in that 144,000. And obviously, if you've been alive during the time of Watchtower and during the time of Jehovah's Witnesses, um, and you think you're going to heaven, your only chance is to do it by becoming a Jehovah's Witness and by observing the teachings of Watchtower. But what's interesting is that in 1935, the teaching changed. They used to think that this other class of people called the Great Crowd were also people who went to heaven as like a secondary level of heaven. And they changed it to say, well, the Great Crowd is everyone who gets to live on the earth after Armageddon has laid waste. So if you survive survive Armageddon, you're going to be in this Great Crowd that no man is able to number. And you get the the lucky uh, the lucky break of repopulating a planet that has been ravaged by the greatest act of genocide ever ever witnessed, and uh, and so those are the two. Lucky you. <laughs> those are like the two options: either either you're ruling in the one hundred forty-four thousand, and by the way, the vast majority of witnesses don't believe they're going to heaven. The governing body, uh, the men making up the governing body, believe they're in that number. And there's about 20,000 who also believe that they're in that number out of the 8 million Jehovah's Witnesses, but the rest all think they're going to be um, living on the earth. Now, when it wait, comes... Wait, when you yeah. say they believe it, they're just like, yeah, I'm good enough, I'm in? Or is there like someone anointed them or say, like handed them a secret golden ticket? Like, how do you have the hubris and arrogance to say, yeah, I'm one of the 144? Well, this, is the, this, this was a constant question you would ask when you are a Jehovah's Witness, because you nearly always know someone or you've known of someone who is of the 144,000. And you'd always think, yeah, but how do they know? How do they know? And how it would be explained to you is they just know. They just have this feeling of certainty that they're going to heaven. And you just have to kind of accept it. But what's interesting is that the number of memorial partakers, and because the number I won't get into the specifics, but the number of people who claim to be going to heaven has been going up and up and up in recent years. It used to be around 8,000. It's now up to around 20,000, 25,000. And there are different reasons for that. But as the number's gone up, it's interesting to see how the governing body has reacted because they can see growing numbers claiming to be joining them in heaven. And and they actually published a, a Watchtower article where they said, well, you have to remember that some people who think they're going to heaven are deranged or deluded or they're suffering from some kind of mental issue. So they applied this to kind of unknown numbers of anointed JWs, but didn't apply it to themselves. So All right. that's a whole other issue. Um, Revival of the dumbest indeed. But the point I made in my video, I kind of talked a little bit about the kind of generic afterlife which is where you die and go to heaven uh that's what most christian denominations believe they believe some form of well when you die you go to heaven and i I explained that when i was a jw i would refute this by saying well my mother died when i was 21 and the the idea of her floating around in heaven watching me during all my times of happiness and sadness including the times of abject misery and, and total suffering, knowing knowing her the way I know her, that she would find that intolerable. She would find that hell. And that's 
I, I think that logic still holds. Now, what's interesting is that um, with JWs, there's a all similar I know is that all those people floating around in heaven watching all these teenage boys with cell phones are gonna. That, I don't. That's gonna be. I know, right? Right. Grandma, um, no! Don't watch like, me. Grandma. It's like you get to go to heaven and watch reality TV all day. Like seriously, yeah. that some, is your paradise. That's your something afterlife. very pervy going on there, isn't it? I know, right? Um, I mean, if somebody, if somebody uh, said to me that heaven was going and watching Jersey Shore, you know, twenty four seven, I would be like, please, for God's sake, send me to the bad place. I, I, I know, you know. Well, when I heard you say that, Lloyd, I was reminded, I had the same sort of sensation that, that my deceased grandmother as a spirit was in the world around me. And so, you know, I, I just, it's almost like a, a guilt, scary thing, you know, yeah. I don't want grandma to see me doing this. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's weird. It's weird. Anyway, I didn't mean to. Uh, there's actually <laughs> there's actually an explanation that someone came up with, that, and I'll get to that later because one of my viewers left it. Yes, but this is what I think, and I'll get to that later because okay. it's kind of interesting. But basically, what J what JWs believe, they don't believe in going to heaven. They believe that when you die, provided you're of the number who are resurrected to the earth you're basically dying into Jehovah's memory. So it's almost like you're, everything that makes you who you are is being uploaded into Jehovah. And then after Armageddon's been and gone, um, the resurrected ones start coming back and Jehovah's going to kind of beam your dead loved one back onto the planet and you get to be reunited with them. And the point I make in my video is that, again, applying this to my mother, um, she died when I was 21 as a devout Jehovah's Witness, with me as a devout Jehovah's Witness at that time. She'll be beamed back onto this planet thinking, where's Lloyd? You know, I've got two kids. One of them, you know, at least one of them is is um, is Lloyd, and where is he? And I'm not going to be there. And that would be hell. And the only way you can explain it not being hell is to say, and this is what some witnesses do say, they say, oh, well, God's going to change your mother so that she doesn't care about you anymore. Um, she's gonna, he's going to alter her mind so that you just don't matter. Well, if you're going to wow. do that, if you're going to do that, it's no longer my mother, is it? You've literally changed the person so that it's a different person. So Interesting. that was basically, the, that, was, that was the premise of my video. And I had some interesting responses. Obviously, I had a number of, kind of believers who were saying, oh, you know, you have to bash on at Christians all the time, that kind of thing. But I had one interesting viewer who said, well, my, here's my version of heaven. He said, it's a bit like the holodeck on Star Trek. <laughs> Actually, no, real, real life is like the holodeck on Star Trek. And when you go to heaven, you get off the holodeck. So that, you, like you and I, the three of us having this conversation, we're on the holodeck. N none of this is real. And reality is off the holodeck where all the dead people are who've made it and they're waiting for us to join them. And and I replied and said, well, that sort of works if once you're off the holodeck, you're not aware of that time's passing because otherwise there's a whole lot of waiting around for people to come off the holodeck. We're talking decades, you know, if, where, you're, where you're apart from your loved ones. But the main problem I have is that you've literally invented a scenario that makes sense of the whole thing. 
they cannot be proven or supported in any way, shape or form. And that's what I was thinking when Jonathan was giving us this very elaborate, I, I hope he doesn't mind if I use the word convoluted version of what heaven is. The problem is, is it's just completely made up. There's no way it can be disproven in any way, shape or form. So that's what I find fascinating about the afterlife is that it's, it's always going to be a human construct. Well, exactly. And I, the thing that fascinates me about it are the various uh, uh, ideas and constructs and models that people bring into it and stuff. This is, you know, none of this can be proven. We can't say for sure that the Mormons didn't get it right. And I sit here and laugh at some of the silliness of it because I find it silly. But that's not to say that I'm like trying to ridicule people who really believe this stuff or tell them, you know, you're a moron or something. It's not really the point. It's just more of, I wanted to see the constructionism that goes on between our different groups and how these models work. And, the, and there are such amazing similarities between, from one to the other. I, am, I was most intrigued by what you just said there about the fact that your mother was going to be changed by God in order to, to, to nullify her feelings to you, toward you simply because you're an unbeliever that is quite a vindictive God. And I actually have a quote that I can read you. I mean, because I, I explore this a little bit in my book. Uh -huh. Because this actually has um, a very kind of disturbing, there's a disturbing side to this when you are a JW. Because there's actually a verse in the Bible uh, where Jesus says that the dead cannot marry or be married because they're like angels. And this verse makes total sense if you believe that when, when you die, you go to heaven. But Jehovah's Witnesses and their theology, which teaches about resurrection into a literal paradise earth, it doesn't make any sense. And so there's all sorts of watchtowers that have been written to try and square the circle. And there was one that was written in 1987 that kind of said what I've just said about mum. It said, human emotions today might make this a difficult conclusion to accept. But it is to be noted that nowhere does the Bible say that God's resurrecting the faithful means restoring their marital status. So, you know, you're imagining your your wife has died and you're thinking, what's going to be waiting for me in the resurrection? Is she still going to be my wife? And here it's saying she might not be and you should just get used to it. And it goes on to say, we have never lived as perfect humans. We cannot be sure how we will feel about past relationships if and when we gain perfect human life in a paradise. So okay. what they're saying is that human relationships and, and the feelings that we have toward each other are kind of malleable and can be altered or, or edited by God. And again, my point is, if you're going to do that, you're going to change the person because we are defined by who we care about. We are defined by our experiences. We're defined by the affection that we have people who are important to us so that if you're going to say well in the future none of it's going to matter well that's a different person then that's a different person that you're describing to me that's exactly right and it would require it would it would make god in that scenario a kind of uh morality or or uh you know ethics overlord or something and if you don't toe the line or you don't uh you know you have some other idea than he does he literally just erases your ideas. I mean, that's that's kind of scary. It's not really a God I want to get behind, to be totally but, but honest. But what's the Scientology afterlife? 
Oh, well. Well, okay. hold on. Before we get to that, though, okay, because yeah. I want to hear that, but I like, I, I still don't have a sense, Lloyd, of what it means to be in heaven as a J Dub. Like in, in Mormonism, you're going to be a God, you're going to be doing God stuff. So anything we see God, so that's what you're doing. You're having eternal mm -hmm. families and war. Like, based on the the pamphlets i've seen it seems like heaven and j-dubs is like you're living in a big garden with lions and lambs and you're just no, that's, that's the earth that's the paradise earth okay so, so when you see kind of a, a utopia depicted on jw publications it's usually going to be the paradise earth that the majority of witnesses either survive into because they've survived Armageddon or they get resurrected into because they died before Armageddon and then they get resurrected. So and that's, that's where they have the fruit tables and the petting pandas and that kind of thing. So and the 144, what, what, what are the 144? They are living in a cloud city. Um, they all have wings and white beards. Wings? I haven't seen any women up there because they all seem to be men. They all have white beards. Uh, Jesus looks a lot like Kenny Rogers. And <laughs> they, they, they have harps. I, I'm just relaying to you what's in the illustrations. I mean, that's all I have to go off. Um, and their Wait, job... Harps? They actually did the harps and the wings. the harps and oh, there's there's all sorts of stuff going on because they, they're singing and they're waving palm branches and the, it really depends on what scripture is being depicted from Revelation. If you get the, the book, the 1988 book, Revelation, it's grand climax at hand, you see all sorts of depictions of JW heaven. Um, and what's interesting is that they depict God and they can never bring themselves to show his face because it's God. So it's just like an oval of light that, that's God. And everyone else, uh, we get to see their faces. And again, it's usually men with white beards. Um, but what's interesting, their job basically is to rule over Earth as kings and priests alongside Jesus. That's their job. So we don't get a whole lot of detail as to, for example, how galaxies are going to be administered and who's going to take care of keeping the natural forces in check and that kind of thing. It's just, well, they're going to be kings and priests with Christ. Okay. Okay. Now, both of these, now here's, a, here's an interesting take, and, I, and, I'll, and I'll get into the Scientology stuff in just a second, because I think, because it'll lead into this. There's no accounting for any other species or aliens or other races or other intelligent life in the universe. Both of your religions are very Earth-centric. Is that right? Yeah, correct. No, 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 no. So in Mormonism... Oh. God uh, has created worlds without number, like that count more than the sands of the of the sea, that are populated with anthropomorphic humanoids who are created also in the in the image of God. When you go through the temple ceremony, one of the things that Satan does when he's tempting Eve and he gets confronted by God for having tempted Eve is he's saying, "I'm doing that which has been done in other worlds." And so the idea is that every one of those worlds had kind of a first man that went through that model. Wow. And the, the difference with Earth, though, is that Earth was the only one of this countless worlds that the people on it were so corrupt that they would actually murder the Son of God. And but so... You but you don't have any ETs in Mormon. No. Well, no. I mean, the only... People with souls or, you know, with actual are humanoid because we are made in the image of God. And so right. that is the 
you know, God is a, a spiritual, physical, it, we would almost perceive him as an alien creature like Q in Star Trek, for example, who has all this right. power, but is a being that was once a man. And so like the embryo stage of God is humanity. And okay. so there's a certain amount of arrogance that goes along with that, where the people who are the leaders of the church, you know, really believe that they are the pinnacle of this stage of humanity, that the next phase is actual Godhood. Okay. Okay. So, so pretty earth centric then. I mean, it's not the concept of, I mean, Mormon, the Mormon model, I guess you could say, could include other alien races or species or something, but nobody really talks about that or thinks about that too much. It's pretty, pretty right. only, only alien in that they would exist on other planets, yeah. but they okay. would still be human. They would still be carbon based. They would still be DNA. Got it. The source okay. of it was God. All right. And, and Lloyd, of course, JWs is nothing but human. Nothing, there's nothing beyond our solar system, really. And, and if there is, well, maybe that's something where, where in the future, once the Earth is full, which will, it will have to be very quickly, um, then, they'll, then they might start going and colonizing other planets. But there's no real talk of there being other life forms. Okay. All right. Got it. Well, here are here are some key differences with Scientology compared to what you guys have put together because and Scientology is the most modern of these thoughts, right? It came around in the 1950s. So we already had, you know, rockets and, and science fiction and all that. Yeah, Flash Gordon, etc. Um, there's two big differences. The difference number one is that Scientology does take into account that there are and have been for many, many millennia civilizations on other planets that have affected Earth and that sort of thing. It's part of the cosmology of Scientology. And two, there's no external judgment factor in the afterlife involved in Scientology. What happens to you happens because of your own causation. Um, it's not even a, a karmic thing. There are consequences to your actions, and if you act evil, or you act in a bad manner, there will be consequences for that. But the reason for those consequences is because you are bringing those consequences in on yourself. Um, it's not a cosmic force or, or separate entity doing that. Um, Hubbard's rationale for that is that man as a spiritual entity is basically a well-intentioned good person, a good entity, good, good, they're called thetans. And, uh, and Thetans don't want to be hurting other people or doing bad things. They want things to everybody to get along and that sort of thing. And so when they act against those good intentions, then they punish themselves for, for having done that. Uh, so, you know, Hitler could off, be off right now being a rock uh, because he's not even up to being a human being or even being a cat or a dog because he's so you know, he fucked himself so hard because he was such a bad person. Um, so that's, that's part of the, the, you know, the morality of Scientology is it's pretty much on you. But the idea with Scientology is that there, there is no real afterlife different from what we're kind of experiencing right now. Life is just life. And um, and this physical universe is only here because we all agree that it's here. So how can you fulfill a billion-year contract? Well, you, what you would do is you would have a, you, you know, this body would grow old and die. And then you go to the hospital like you have every time you've died for countless trillennia before, and you go pick up a baby. And now this is your new body and it's your new life. 
Wow. And you, you either find a pregnant woman or a baby that was just born that nobody else has attached itself to yet. And you attach yourself as a spiritual being, as a Thetan, you assume ownership of and take responsibility for growing this body and living your life through Do this body. Do you get any body. time off while you're growing your body? No time off. You can, you, you could, Hubbard has different places where he talks about this. It could yeah. be three days, it could be 10 days, it could be 20 years. You know, people get stuck. Thetans get stuck. They don't know where, you know, they get buried in the ground and they're in a box and their body's dead. And they're just kind of stuck there because they don't know how to get out, you know, and eventually it decomposes and then there's no body anymore. And then they're like, okay, well, I guess it's really gone now because they get pretty attached to your life. You get when you explain it like that, it makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. So there's so many ethical questions with what you talked about. Like, so, so <laughs> then Scientologists would have no reason to oppose abortion. No. Um, because there's they no... They do not thing. know. They don't. Now, Hubbard, but they don't oppose abortion, obviously, because they enforce abortion in the Sea Org. Really? Uh, well, yeah. If you're in the Sea Org, which is the Sea Organization, the highest level of Scientology commitment, 24-7, uh, you're working for the church. That's all you're doing. If you're in that group of people and you get pregnant, they're going to kick you out. And they don't want to kick you out because they don't have any facilities to deal with kids. They tried and they failed miserably and it was just an abject failure. So what they decided is, okay, no more kids. But they want to keep you if you get pregnant. So they're going to encourage you to have an abortion so that you can stay in the Sea Org. So no, there's no qualms about wow. abortion. Hubbard wrote in Dianetics about attempted abortions. And if you screw it up, if you try to abort your kid and you, and you don't succeed and the kid grows you know, and, and is born he's going to have mental image pictures and memories of that attempted abortion and it's going to screw him up. So if you're going to do it, you better do it right because an attempted abortion is a bad thing in Scientology, but the act of abortion is not. So that it, so, so it's essentially a form of reincarnation, what you're describing yeah. and it's right. just perpetual. Is there any end goal or is this just like, is there a set number of thetans in the universe and they just continue to inhabit bodies? Well, okay, well, it's Thetans. Thetans, sorry. Yeah, Thetans. It's like calling Miskovich. Um, yeah, it's Thetans, because it comes from the Greek letter theta. Okay. And um, no, there, there, I guess you could say there are a set number of Thetans. There aren't new Thetans being created particularly, but it was a little bit, Hubbard was a little gray zone on this. There, are, there were a number of places where Hubbard was not quite clear. He talked about how there are younger Thetans and older Thetans, but he never really ever anywhere described where Thetans actually come from. He just said that about four trillion trillion years ago or something, there was an entry into this physical universe from wherever Thetans were before. And there was and he, there, there were various statements that he made that sounded conject conjectural. You know, like he was like, well, maybe the physical universe is just the composite of all of our universes sort of combined. We were all Thetans living independently in our own little universes in the Theta universe, and there was no physical universe. We were just creating things and doing what we were doing. And then a couple Thetans got together and said, well, hey, let's make some joint creations 
and then some other Thetans got along and some other ones and then boom, big bang and there's the fiscal universe, right? And it's a big playground originally that everybody was just gonna play in and have fun. But then what happened somewhere along the line is people developed bodies in which to you know, utilize to mess around with and, and play with the physical universe, kind of analogous to how children play with dolls, that kind of an analogy. And you would play with a doll, but after a while, you'd kind of forget that you were playing with the doll because the doll was so damn interesting, you became the doll. And you kind of imbued so much life and effort and creation into it. So and you become then, Bobby. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And so in Scientology, bodies are a dime a dozen. They, they've, they, you've had billions of them through your time, you know, kind of being stuck in this physical universe where you've forgotten your true spiritual nature and you are not capable at this late date, after all the births and deaths and births and deaths that you've experienced and all the bullshit that you've experienced and all the horrible things you've done over all this time, you've sort of degraded in your awareness and your ability and you've come down to this place where you're now stuck on Earth. It's a prison planet. You were sent here long ago by Talks another- volcanoes. Yeah, that's right. You were sent here a long time ago. That's right. That whole Xenu volcano happening thing, that's the one thing everybody on Earth has in common. There are Thetans out in the, out in the universe who didn't have anything to do with Xenu. But they did have to do with all this other stuff I'm talking about, the, the meshing of the universes and coming together and all of this. So, um, so the idea is to clear, the, the idea with, with Scientology, the goal is to... Um, through our bodies, you know, through this, these short little lifespans that we have, grow Scientology, get more and more people involved in Scientology, becoming more and more aware of what's really going on, and, um, and, and clear planet Earth. Get everybody up to a realization that, you know, through these levels where they find out the truth that they've been stuck here all this time and that they are immortal spiritual beings and that they can't help but keep living. You can't die as a Thetan. There's no such thing as dying. You can only fall asleep or go unconscious or, you know, kind of go be a rock somewhere for a billion years. That's, that is your fate if you don't get rehabilitated. As you will, it's a, Hubbard described it as a dwindling spiral, you know, going down and down and down sort of infinitely. So the, the, the hell is not a place that you would go in the afterlife, the hell is you got to keep doing this over and over and over again. That's your hell. In, in essence, in Scientology, Groundhog Day. this is the bad place, right? But there is no good place. The good place is rehabilitating yourself and everybody else, freeing everybody from the shackles, so that we can all get back to that place we used to be before we were all trapped here. The good place is in the here and now, basically. Yeah, it's, and it always has been. Yeah, but right. does that mean that as a Thetan, you then reject the need to inhabit the doll and you're happy to exist as a Thetan yourself and so yes. you remove yourself from this plane of existence? Or knowingly and causatively stay here but you're now in charge and you know what you're doing and you're back into 
when I'm playing with a doll, I've, I'm fully recognizing it's a doll. It's not me. That, right. that's, so, not, like, that's not the, what I'm about. The Xenu Thetan is around there somewhere. And at some point he decided to inhabit a child that grew up to be Miscavige. And so now he's <laughs> in charge, right? No, because Xenu is actually still in the body that he had 76 million years ago when he did his whole genocide, galactic genocide here on Man, Earth. Looks rough. They trapped him in uh, an electronic prison. Oh, I forgot about that. Battery. Yeah. And so he's still there. And the idea is that, and, and here's one of the funny ideas, is that pre-Xenu, people lived extraordinarily long lives in these bodies. Bodies didn't have an 80-year lifespan. They went and went and went. They, they wouldn't die. The only way you could die is if you just dropped the body, uh, you know, or you killed it in a crash or something, in an accident. And so, live, so, so one of the results of the whole Xenu volcano nuclear explosion thing uh, was, the, was implanting the idea that we only live a short period of time, and that's why we only live a short period of time now. Now, it occurs to me, listening to almost all these stories, that one of the, the effects of these afterlife stories is devaluing life today. Like when you were talking about how it's no big deal if you die, you know, you're just going to come up again. And I've even encountered this in family members and friends who remain Mormon, who are in, in very difficult situations at times in their life. And their answer is, well, it'll get fixed in the afterlife. Mm -hmm. I mean, even difficulties yeah. with relationships. Exactly and things how it is I with Jehovah's Witnesses. You don't really, you don't really care about what's happening in this life. You, everything's about the new system. So no matter how bad things get, you could devote your life to serving Watchtower. You could be dirt poor, but so long as you're storing up treasures in heaven, you know that when you die, you're going to have this wonderful promise that's been given to you. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, I absolutely had a very serious adjustment to make uh, coming out of that belief system because I was, I was getting a, I was under the frame of mind as a Scientologist that I was gonna live forever. And it was just gonna be a matter of what body was I gonna be occupying. And so if I got on a plane and I had a, you know, a fear of the plane crashing, I'd sort of go, well, it would really suck if, my, if, if the plane crashed and I lost all my people that I love right now, that would kind of suck. But I just go get another body and I'll just connect up with them again in some other you know, future life. I mean, you know, there's, We'll just, we'll just connect up again. It's not a big deal. And in a way, that was super comforting, <laughs> you know, knowing that I wasn't going to just end. But, and so the adjustment for me was realizing, oh, this is probably it. So I better get busy making as much of this as I can because I might not get another go. And that was a radical viewpoint shift for me because I'd had this, this infinite lifespan idea almost my entire life. I was raised with this. So this was not a, you know, something I came to accept when I was in my 20s or my 30s when I converted. I never converted. It's, this, was, this was how it was my whole life. So it was a radical shift for me to adjust to a different way of looking at things. And I value every day a lot more 
than I used to when I was when I was in the Sea Org. And in fact, something else that I hadn't really thought about too much until you just said that, Lloyd, is that that was one of the reasons I was willing to put up with the amount of abuse and nonsense that went on in Scientology and the Sea Org is because I knew, okay, but this is a temporary thing. I'm going to get through this and, and we're going to build a better world. The end justifies the means. Yeah, my life sucks right now. I thought that it sucked when I was in Scientology, but it was okay. Because so you we have were this ironic thing where, because in my view, religion is more or less a device for bypassing mortality and making us think that there's more to life. And that I agree that it, it's a it's a comforting, consoling way of 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 us overcoming that issue. But it also kind of morphs into this extra layer of control whereby you only get to have this carrot that's being dangled if you, you know, suck it up and do what we're telling you to do. That's right. That's exactly right. This is, and that's, again, a commonality between all of us is this carrot and, you know, and we're getting beaten with the stick, you know, but we're chasing that carrot, you know, I got to get that thing. And I, and, and, and I'm sure, I'm so sure that I will get it. You know, so I'll put up with anything you do to me in the here and now because I'm going to get this wonderful thing. And I, I, I talk about logical fallacies, man. That is just a man. We put up with a lot of bullshit because of that. There's a there's a darker side of this concept of devaluing life in your own existence. And that is that um, like in Mormonism, if you devalue life in that way, and if you say that, okay, well, if somebody dies here, we can convert them in the afterlife, then that gives you a framework where you could justify even murder to defend the kingdom. And so yeah. before Joseph Smith died, he started this secret organization called the Council of 50 that had as one of its driving goals to set up and establish a theocracy where the religious and political government were combined. And they've released some of the documents of the minutes of their meetings where we're seeing statements made in secret by some of the church leaders that had been made with oaths of, if you tell people this, you're going to lose your cursed head. And so, and these documents have been locked away in the vaults of the church leaders for over a century. And they recently were published. And one of the things that was said by Brigham Young, who is kind of Mormonism's miscavige, is... You know, we're, we're having such a hard time with these apostates or with these other people. It'll be easier just to wipe them out and then convert them after they're dead. Right. And, and so that mentality, just knowing that it exists within the realm of possibility when you are filled with this religious fervor and mindset is very dangerous and damaging. Well, I've got a, another dark connotation, which was fairly recent, um, there was a murder-suicide in Kigo Harbor, Michigan, which I talked about on my channel, where um, a mother killed her two children, who I think were going through college, and her husband basically killed her family and then killed herself. And she was being, the family was being shunned by the local congregation of Jehovah's Witnesses. But in the suicide note that was left behind, there were things that were said that implied that she did what she did because she thought she was doing her family a favor by basically expediting them through to the resurrection. Yep. So in yep. other words, I'm killing you now because that way you can be certain of getting through 
all of this awfulness that we're seeing now in the world, you're just going to wake up tomorrow in the new system and I've given you this gift. I've sacrificed myself to give you this gift. So there are really, really dark connotations to, to that kind of theology. Absolutely. It opens the door also to, I mean, why not just go, I mean, mass shootings of kids in schools is no big deal because they're the innocents. They're going to, they're, they're good in heaven now. It's all good. It's done them a favor because they don't have a chance to grow up and make mistakes. And that's right. That's exactly right. We have that same concept where before eight years old, you're innocent. If you die before eight years old, you're going straight to the celestial kingdom. Right. So yeah. So a mass shooting at a kindergarten would be a good thing according to certain kind of logic yeah. no. there, you know, which of course is, is, is batshit crazy. In Scientology, they, you know, you, you're not free from all of this cycle of birth and death until you've gone through Scientology's auditing levels. So, so it would not, so it doesn't go, it doesn't lend itself to that kind of thinking. But what it does do as, as a very real consequence in the, in the real world is it diminishes um, loss. It diminishes feelings of sympathy and compassion and empathy because uh, bodies are a dime a dozen. Who cares? You've had a million before. You're going to have another million again. So you lost your loved one. Well, that sucks, but they're not really dead. They just went and got another body. They're, they're probably in a baby right now somewhere. And Scientologists will use this in a consoling way. I mean, they're not completely callous about loss, but they really honestly... Unless it happens to them personally, they don't really care that much, you know, because it's like, meh, you know, he's just going to go get another body. It's not a big deal. And then uh, if you're racked with pain over the grief, does that put you in the position of people kind of looking down on you? And like, if you're really feeling this pain, then you must not really believe in the truth of this it, idea. Yes, that is how it manifests. It's, it's a little bit like you get a grace period to get mm. over the loss right? Like, yeah, it really sucks that you had a kid, you know, or your mother died or something like, yeah, there should be a period where, where you're going to get over this loss. But the other part about this is that that loss period is supposed to be short because you're supposed to go get an auditing session, a counseling session in Scientology, where you're supposed to find out that the only reason you're experiencing this grief and loss is not because you analytically realize that this is just a spirit going to go get another body. So what, what's the big deal? Where's all this loss and pain and, and grief coming from? Well, it's coming from earlier traumas you've experienced, which probably go back to some instances where you killed people and caused that kind of pain and uh. suffering to others. And that's why it's coming back and being revisited upon you now you're pulling that in, so to speak. It really all goes back to it's your fucking fault, right? Yeah, so, blame, blame reversal 101. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what that little grace period is supposed to be for is kind of like, and it's not a formal thing. It's not like you have five days of grief and then it's over. It's just, this is kind of the attitude in Scientology. It's kind of like after about a month or so, people are going to be looking at you like, what, you're still broken up about that? Like, really? Like, what? what's your, and it becomes... What's your problem that you're experiencing that still? I had a question for you guys. One of the things that I encounter periodically when believers confront you, one of the things that they'll ask you is like, well, what do you believe now? And usually what they're talking about is 
what is your concept of the afterlife now? Because yeah. that is so central to each of our belief systems. And if you venture to explain that, it becomes a, well, I'm going to compare my goods with your goods. And, and since my goods, you know, since my story of the afterlife is much more glorious, then I'm going to like poo poo and, and look down at yours. Have you guys experienced the same thing? How do you respond? I, I really like, um, there was a, there was a video that, of uh, Christopher Hitchens in one of his last um, appearances before he died, and, and someone was asking him about that side of things and the whole mortality issue and the fact that he was dying. And um, and he, he said about the afterlife, look, I like surprises, you know. And that's that's kind of my approach, is that nobody has any way of saying whether life goes on after we die. The, the, there's a very strong likelihood, at the very least, that it doesn't, because if you take a bit of someone's brain away, you're a different person. You don't carry on being the same person if you lose a part of your brain. It alters you in a way, and I think that's strong evidence to suggest that there is no afterlife. But rather than being dogmatic, I'm willing to just say, well, I like surprises. Um, but if there is an afterlife, I'm certainly not going to deserve it by being a dick and being dogmatic and telling people, well, you must believe this or, or you're, you're not quite worthy as a human being. Uh, and that's why I, I, I think humanism for me is the pullback position where you're just saying, well, I, I'm going to do my very best to aid my species and to improve general well-being for people. And who knows, but the likelihood is that this is my one my one shot. And if there is no afterlife, at least I'll have the satisfaction of knowing when when I die that I've done my best with the, the fleeting moment that I've had of, of existence. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Uh, the only label that I like out of all the labels to take is humanist. Yeah. It's yeah. the only one that I actually go, yes, I like that. I like that label. That's who I, that's who I am, you know, and I, I, I just tell people straight up in terms of afterlife, I just say, look, I don't know, you don't know, no one of us can know. So let's just find out, you know, because it could be that life is something we don't even consciousness is something we don't have a clue about right now. Um, I'm not saying that we, that we don't have any clues about it. I'm saying it could be that it's so different from what we think right now, or even are capable of thinking, that it could be, you know, red is blue, black is white. I mean, you know, you die and suddenly, like, uh, you know, you get a whole different view of the world or something. Um, I've read some great stories with some really, um, I have some very imaginative people that have come up with some, what I thought were some brilliant scenarios that I never would have thought of for what happens in the afterlife. So I'm open to anything. I have... If you keep your expectations low, you'll never be disappointed. Yeah, there is that. There is that. I'm certainly not expecting any kind of glorious, uh, heavenly, you know, good place um, or, uh, you know, a hellacious bad place. I just have hopes that there's something. But, you know, what that something will consist of, it's, it's anybody's guess. I tend to um, avoid the question for a very specific reason, and that is that... Um, as an activist, and you guys may have this same sort of thing, um, 
one of the things that I don't want to get into the realm of is telling people what to believe. You know, in Mormonism, Correct. we have a lot of evangelical Christians that their approach is to try to get you to believe what they want you to believe. And that, set, that sets up a system that is problematic for a number of reasons. And so I try to focus on just getting people to think about things logically, to trust their own judgment and their own inner voice, and then to approach the world so that anything that they come to internalize and accept is the result of their own authentic evaluative process. And so for me to convey what I believe is completely immaterial because I don't want to assume that anyone else should believe what I believe. And the what I talk about is not getting people to believe what I believe. It's simply getting people to trust their own voice and to sift through all of these messages that you get from proposed authorities, people claiming authority to have that certainty. Although also, I think there's some merit in being able to express what you believe with, with the understanding that you're not insisting that everyone agrees mm -hmm. with you. And, and that's kind of like a process we go through when we leave the cult is understanding that we're all free to disagree. And just because you give me X, Y, Z believe, beliefs doesn't mean that you're trying to convince me of that. It's just that's, that's what you suspect. So I think that yeah. lesson to be able to have that level of dialogue is very valuable. The, the mm -hmm. difficulty that I have with going there is that I'm trying to avoid the defensive mechanisms and the triggering that happens because of the undue influence messaging that happens within the group. Mm. And so I've, I just found that um, what people will do is no matter what you propose, they're going to compare the fanciful, glorious vision that Joseph Smith created that addressed all of these issues. And no matter what you guys have, they're going to look at it and make it seem it's just going to seem pedantic and pedestrian and, and lame. I, I wrote an article that tried to convey this. And I, what I did is I had my daughter, I said, create the car of your dreams. And she drew this car that's like totally made out of candy. It's powered by lemonade and soda. And it has all of these just fanciful things. And I'm like, this is a fantastic car. I would love this car. And then I hold it up next to like a Toyota, a Toyota Celica or a, just a, you know, a conventional car, which will get you from A to B, but it just looks so ridiculous compared to this huge, awesome candy mobile that my daughter would make. And so trying to compare anything rooted in reality with the glorious vision of these religious geniuses is, is always going to set you up to create comparisons that people are going to end up Although sometimes when you get out of a cult, what you really appreciate is a dose of reality. <laughs> Well, well, that's absolutely. very true. I, I, th I, th I think we could probably agree, though, that trying to tear down somebody's idea of the afterlife is probably not the best way to approach changing hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. um, I've, I don't think that attacking, uh, or it, maybe even attacking is the wrong word, but going after or going in on um, a person's idyllic, you know, this, this is the carrot they are holding on to so strongly because it's the good part of the belief it's the it's the reward it's the thing they're going to get that's not how i i don't think trying to take that down is going to get you any allies because even yeah. if you successfully deconstruct it they're just going to resent you because they had this wonderful idea you took heaven away from me you took it away right and, and 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 the harsh reality of life is not necessarily a lot of fun I, like I said, it although took we a need to be years. able to have, we need to be able to have these conversations. 
between. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Like, you know, there's, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think the it's it's just a case of how you pitch it. Yeah. And so, so I think at example, the right time will, too. Yeah, exactly. Yes, it's, it's timing. Exactly. And when we're talking about these things, we're talking about them on our channels. For example, we're not kind of evangelically going around and knocking on people's doors and saying, here's what yeah. I think and you should think it too. <laughs> right. Um, as, 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 about, uh, as, you know, may I share with you the revelation of the Corolla today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, fair enough. Okay, well... Listen, this was actually, this was really good. This was better than I thought it was going to be. I really, really love it when uh, when I'm talking to you guys because we get such great uh, feedback and perspectives on some things I hadn't even thought about. So um, so this was this was better than I hoped. Um, Mormon, Mormon, heaven, Mormon heaven is still the best. <laughs> I, I, I'm just disappointed because, again, I was hoping to see Jonathan's magic underwear, and I feel as though that's a carrot. That's, yeah. It'll have to be next uh, time. <laughs> have to be next time, okay. Because in heaven, they's all wearing that, so there you go. Right, <laughs> right. All right, guys. Uh, folks out there, any comments, criticism, uh, feedback, good, bad, or sideways, go ahead and leave it in the comments section below here on YouTube or at sensiblyspeaking.com. And um, if you're listening on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play, please go ahead and give this uh, show a rating and review. I definitely appreciate your feedback and want to know what you guys think. And uh, anything else that you think we might want to cover on this podcast, go ahead and throw your suggestions my way because I'm always open to them. Uh, guys, again, thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, and I'm sure we will do this again soon.